Welcome to the Sustainability and You podcast, a series of interviews focusing on facts shared by passionate advocates who are part of the movement towards net zero. I'm Josephine Bush, and I'm the founder of the Sustainability and You platform. And I'm Tilly Wickens, the leader of our Young Ambassadors Council. In this podcast series, our aim is to raise awareness, encourage collaboration, and join the dots between disciplines that will influence policy and decision-making as we move to net zero. We are aiming to bridge the gap between silos and generations, strengthening the lines of communication with a small, influential community of people who care and are passionate about how we create change. Today we interview Walter Van Toll, who is Head of Government, Community Affairs and Sustainability at DS Smith, the FTSE 100. Walter has had various roles in sustainability with well-known brands including Nestle and Samsung. We talk about DS Smith's approach to the circular economy, of which they are positive and impactful proponents. Additionally, Walter offers his views on the role of non-state actors in the race to zero the role of innovation and approaches to, and a responsibility for, scope three emissions. He expresses his wish for convergence around reporting frameworks and target setting, leading to consistency, better comparability, and more effective decision-useful data. So welcome, Walter, to the Sustainability and You podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you with us today. That's my pleasure. It's nice to meet you too. We're looking forward to this interview from a number of perspectives, not least because obviously Tilly, uh, my co-presenter, is an employee of DS Smith. But I think that DS Smith and what it's done in terms of its focus uh, and strategic thinking around the circular economy is going to be a very interesting topic for us to explore with you today. But before we get into that, perhaps we could start, Bauta, by understanding a little bit about you, your role, the ambit of your role, uh, and a little bit of your background. Okay, so for maybe I should start with uh, DS Smith very briefly because some people might not know us. So. We're one of those large companies that no, nobody's ever heard of, but we're a FTSE 100 packaging and paper company, a £6 billion turnover. So it gives you an idea of the scale. And I can tell you a bit more about the how the business runs a little bit later on. I'm the head of government, community affairs and sustainability. And I do that globally for the for the DS Smith. And the background is that I started actually in commercial roles. I did sales in uh, Procter & Gamble and marketing in Nestle. But also in Nestle, I then decided to go into sustainability. That was my big passion. And I was the first sustainability manager for, for Nestle UK. And, and ever since I've been working in this field, so in Nestle, in Samsung Electron, and Hutamaki, which is a Finnish um, packaging company, and now for D.S. Smith. Fabulous. Well, given that background and given your focus on sustainability with a number of organisations, maybe it's a really good place to start to understand how you've seen sustainability, the topic of sustainability, embed into corporate strategies, particularly with the larger corporates, the listed corporates, over the time that 
you have been engaged with that topic. I think it'd be really interesting to understand that journey for sustainability. Well, there's certainly been a journey, I think, for most companies. And generally speaking, sustainability starts as something that people know instinctively is important. They probably know from consumer research that it's important. And if that's not the case, then they will hear it from customers that it's important. They start working on it, but everybody's for sustainability until it starts to cost money. So that is usually where where the rubber hits the road. And that's really where it becomes interesting. So how committed is the company to really make changes, either in the business model or in the products or, or, or otherwise? And I think what you can see in the last, I would say, especially the last couple of years, I mean, the acceleration has been there for a long, much longer period, as you all uh, know. But I, I would say that the last two years in particular, the acceleration has been particularly fast. And if I look at investors, I can see the probably the biggest change there among investors And if you ask the CEO of any leading company how much of their time when they talk to investors, how much of the time is spent on financials and how much of their time is spent on ESG issues or sustainability issues, you'd probably be surprised the percentage of time they spend on ESG issues. And and that is a new development. And then uh, I I would say that uh, you could also see that among policymakers, there's a big shift. In particular, in Europe, there is so much legislation coming our way all around the green topics, plastics, carbon, etc. If you if you add all that up, that is a, a big shift in the last couple. Of- yeah, and when we look at the external we- um, world and the the changing nature of the climate and its impact uh, on the environment and biodiversity, it's not surprising that that's having a ripple effect into sort mm. of corporate footprints and operational strategies. Interestingly. You know, to, to, to your point on investor relation engagement, it's not surprising that they're all also engaging with this topic, given the clear correlation now between the, the valuation premiums for businesses mm-hmm. that have ESG strategies. There's clear evidence, isn't there, that it, it does enhance value, creates alpha, if you like, in financial speak. In terms of then the, I guess, the incorporationness, the embeddedness of your sustainability strategy and the overarching strategy of DS Smith, how how connected do you find those things? Are there, is it siloed thinking or is it embedded thinking? For DS Smith, the, the, the model itself, the business model itself has been semi-circular for quite a long time. And I think that's is a difference with many other companies. So we have three divisions. The first one is recycling and they pick up old paper and board Mm -hmm. then it gets taken to our paper making mills they turn it into paper Mm -hmm. and that then gets turned into packaging so corrugated paper packaging so boxes and your e-commerce orders will uh, be delivered in them and and your favorite brands in the supermarket are protected by them that is the corrugated product that we make but after use of that product the packaging gets returned through recycling. And so there's this cycle that goes round and round where we pick up the paper and it gets turned into new paper. And that's from one box to the next box, if you will, is a, we call it the 14-day box-to-box model. So we have that, there's a circle in there already. Is that a perfect circle? No, there's obviously much that we can improve on. 
but I think if you ask me how circular is DS Smith, I think we're well down that road. It's really integrated in how we do business. I know that one of the key sort of components in that circular methodology and model is the partnership with the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. And I'd be interested to hear how that has perhaps reinforced that style and also how that has potentially attracted or helped retention of of our clients. Yes, I I think we're now in the second year of our, or almost the third year of uh, our strategic partnership with the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. And, you know, Ellen MacArthur Foundation is is a brilliant group of systems thinkers. Uh, They don't know much about cardboard boxes, but we do. We're not necessarily systems thinkers. We think in products and, 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 and paper mills, et cetera. So if you put the two together, I think where we had the greatest success was that the Alan MacArthur Foundation helped us to think more of how can we ex- how can DS Smith extend its influence and its circular thinking outside of its own operations and start talking more to customers, start marking, uh, talking more to uh, suppliers. And we've developed these concrete tools to do it. And that's what I like because just talking is one thing, but these concrete tools where you can make business decisions, that's when it becomes interesting. So we have circular design principles, which are 700 designers use every day. They've all been trained on that. But we've now also launched circular design metrics. It's basically a tool that allows you to see for any products that a customer buys from us, how circular is that product today and how circular can it be in the future? And what steps can you take to get there? So it's really concrete and it allows you to make business decisions. But also, we've been talking to suppliers around circular around circularity, and we've taken them through an Elamaka uh, Foundation tool that's called Circulitics, which looks at how circular are you as a company. And some of those suppliers are now using the insights from that to put new KPIs in place on how they run their business. So I think it is uh, sending the influence into your supply chain, into your value chain, that is where it becomes interesting. And that's where Ella MacArthur Foundation has really helped us. I mean, it's a great example, actually, of the influence of a non-state actor within this sphere. And what you can do is a very influential and substantive player in this field, creating impact beyond your direct financial relationships with your supply chain or your customers. You know, to, to the point on education and, and helping share your knowledge and what works, um, that's quite a powerful um, position to be in. How conscious as an organization are you of that? And what further work would you like to do within that sphere, given that very positive example of what you've just shared with us? Yes. And uh, I think the more our customers are, now, because uh, Tilly was asking about, you know, uh, customer retention and et cetera. And, you know, customers are asking about things like plastic replacement, because we all know that plastic isn't, is not widely recycled. That's a problem in some cases, many cases, you can change, uh, you know, you can substitute it with, with, with paper packaging. So if, um, if you can do that with the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and there, and, and working together on developing these tools, I can imagine that we can do much more than that if we work with others as well. And if I look at other industries, I think that's the whole idea of innovation networks. Yes. 
is much more embedded than in industry. And I would really like us to do more innovation with startups, with with non-state actors, but you have to find the right ones because if you spread yourself too thinly, we have a really tiny team doing this. So if you spread yourself too thinly over too many actors, you're going to not achieve anything. So you need to choose really with laser focus which things do you want to achieve and who to work with? And then you have a chance of success. So it's not an innovation and collaboration. It's not a panacea unless you really do it with a very deliberate, focused approach. Yes, very strategic and systemic, actually, in his thinking, <laughs> yeah. really, when you, you think about that. But when you're engaging with the supply chain and thinking about those wider footprints, is that something you're very conscious of bringing into the sort of scope three thinking, if you like, and reporting of what the business um, does. And, and mm. do you set any particular KPIs around that that you can report on as well or should report on? Sure. And uh, we're increasingly looking at uh, scope three. So we're reporting mm. now on, on, on scope three, which is new for us. But we're also doing work to really understand to a much a better level of a better level of granularity what our scope three emissions are made of mm-hmm. and then we can choose on how we use our resource to step by step transform our scope three uh, emissions but i think it's not just the emissions side we're also thinking about we use ecovadis for example as as one of the tools whereby we look at uh, supply chain risks they could be human rights risks they could be environmental risks or other risks and and i think you need to almost combine these approaches to engage strategically with the most important uh, or, the, or the, the most critical suppliers that you have and then gradually go into your uh, yes. supply chain but again if you have thousands and thousands of suppliers you can't just reach all of them at the same time. Again, you need to start really focused to find which ones can have the greatest impact, start there and then move on from there. So I think we're still at a fairly early stage there, to be honest with you, but we're definitely working. Yeah, and and it it's, that strikes me from that definition that it is a truly ESG approach to your supply chain, not just looking at carbon emissions or GHG mm. emissions. It's that broader perspective of mm. the, the supply chain, particularly the S, <laughs> which seems to be getting more focus now. Yes, yes, agree? quite. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and it's. Um, I think it's good that the S gets a bit more attention because especially if you're in a company like ours where we're a company of engineers, and it's very easy to mostly look at the very measurable things, energy, water, waste, mm. nicely measurable, appeals to an engineer's mind. And sometimes you think the S is a little bit, feels maybe a bit more fuzzy, but no, that's, that doesn't really have to be the case. But you need to build the, build the data and build the KPIs to deal with the S as well. And we're certainly doing that. Yeah. ask you about energy, actually, because it's interesting to talking about the circular approach of the business the 14-day box-to-box and so obviously our raw materials are consumed in a very sustainable way increasingly so and we're very self-sufficient as a business one thing that really strikes me is the energy consumption concept in Mm -hmm. that paper for example I know (laughs) working in a paper mill at the moment requires a lot of heat and there's generally a lot of energy required to power the machinery we're a production manufacturing business so that's an that's an obvious thing to bring up and so 
how do you see that at the moment and potentially change as we go forward into a more sustainable way of doing things? Well, you've you've put your finger on the the area where we need to do a lot of work, uh, which is decarbonizing heat, because it is absolutely true that papermaking is one of those hard to abate sectors. It uses a lot of heat, and at the moment we meet that through using natural gas, and ultimately we need to change that uh, to to alternative to renewables. But you have to also look at that in several stages because the solutions are not all available on commercial large scale in the right places at the right times so you need to look almost at mill level which is uh, well for for outsiders paper mill is called i call it a mill so on mill level you need to see what is available in terms of renewable energy and when will it be available and when, when will it be needed and if you look from now until 2050, you can come up with a roadmap that says, when do we need to invest in which technology? So hydrogen, for example, a lot of people talk about hydro- hydrogen. However, it, it pretty much has to be green hydrogen. And that, that, is, that is one element. But green hydrogen will be much more readily available, for example, in harbors with big chemical industry than in places where we have our paper mills. And so... Hydrogen for us doesn't really become viable until the 2030s. So what do we do before then? And then you're looking at biogas, biomass, etc. And so, so you need to look at this as, as a roadmap from now until 2050, mm-hmm. where different solutions are uh, adopted at different times. And it's, that's a good example again, Alter, of the sorts of transition road mapping that many organizations, including oil and gas, need to do in, in order to take us on a path that is a just transition but also holds people to account to the specific transitional objectives they set themselves is it important in your dialogue with investors that you're really clear about the milestones that underpin that transition you know it really depends on the investor what kind of questions you get it really does and some investors are really interested in that. Tell me exactly which kinds of steps are you taking to decarbonize from now until 2050. For somebody else, you might get a really in-depth question about biodiversity in forests. From another one, you might get a, a really in-depth question about, I don't know, um, labor conditions or something. And it really depends on the on the investor. The, the one thing that they all have in common, of course, is the interest in circular economy. That is a really hot topic. So that, that is the thing that they all have in common. But I was surprised by how different investors look differently at ESG and have really different focus areas. And I, th- I suspect that that's quite a common experience in the marketplace. Do you think that the emergence of the TCFD and wider <laughs> adoption of reporting frameworks is going to help you as a business? practically report but also help align questioning in a more focused way so that you're not spread too thinly in response to investor yes i uh, certainly i think tcsd is helpful 
partly because it needs to overcome what Mark Carney, of course, called the tragedy of the horizon. And I, I really, you know, I'm happy that TCFD has been adopted so quickly because it's it has been really quick. Let's let's face it. We're now in our new sustainability report, which was which was published a couple of days ago. We are now fully disclosing everything on on TCFD. So we have a full TCFD section, which we're very proud of. And I wish there was more clear direction in terms of reporting that we can take on board because there are so many reporting frameworks. There are so many questionnaires and different approaches. It is almost impossible for a company, even a FTSE 100. We still we have limited resources, of course, in, in terms of reporting. How many people am I going to put on answering questionnaires from, from different uh, small rankings or, or things uh, I need to prioritize as well. I, w- I would really like to see more consolidation of what is quite a, an immature industry of sustainability reporting frameworks. I'd, I'd like to see consolidation so that the quality of the reporting can go up and the resource required goes down. I mean, I think that's an excellent point, isn't it? And, and it, as I say, probably a shared one that the, there's there's lots of different frameworks out there that one could, you know, adhere, adhere to. Is it your experience then that we haven't, as an as a as an economy, quite nailed yet the 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 value adding attributes of these frameworks? If if the experience is that there's, we obviously don't want reporting for reporting's sake. It needs to be directed to things that are going to help direct capital or encourage shareholder engagement in a really meaningful way or connect customers to product your products and services in a really meaningful way is it your experience that we haven't cracked that yet there are differences there are differences between different rankings so i can't put, say that all of them are the are the, are the same in some instances i think the quality is fairly low yeah. and the level of insight provided is fairly low and i wouldn't personally as an investor put my money into buying those products others are much better and i would invest in those as, as a way to inform my decisions but that's why i say i feel it's quite an immature industry yet there's so many out there and there's such a there's such a plethora of of of, of rankings and frameworks i i really feel that the time is right for consolidation Mm-hmm. And as a and as a again a, a a key influencer within this space, how do you collaborate with governments and institutions to share those experiences and feedback and mold this or influence the molding of this in in a way that you'd like to see? Well, a lot of our uh, government engagement goes through industry associations. And that's often a, a relatively efficient way of doing it because you can come to a, a common understanding and then convey that as a whole group to to governments. And in some cases, we, of course, engage one-on-one with, with governments or with policymakers. But there are so many things that we'd like to talk to them about that at the moment, consolidation of these reporting frameworks is perhaps not in my top five, even though I'm passionate about it and I could talk to you about it until the cows come home. But it's, it, uh, you know, there are the weightier, bigger decisions that we, that we need to talk to governments about. Ask you about uh, 
well, about our wood effectively. Sorry, I might, <laughs> might actually rephrase that question again. I wanted to bring it back to something that is possibly quite an obvious topic of sustainability worldwide, which is deforestation. We use a lot of wood, obviously, to make paper. Because we have a circular economy methodology on which we operate, we don't use as much as perhaps other companies making paper or paper-based products would, but we do obviously use wood. And I'm wondering how we how we go about forestry procurement in a sustainable way and how sort of just talk talk about that a little bit and you know how we're going to go forward in that mm-hmm. future. Yes. Well, I think it's really important the, the point that you make, so I'll reiterate it, is that the majority, the vast majority of the paper that we use is actually recycled paper. Yeah. It's, it's used paper. And it isn't always like that. A lot of companies make virgin paper, as we call it, so that it uh, is, is, has uh, no recycled content. So I think it's really important to say that up front. So that is part, very much part of our business model is that we focus on the recycled paper. But you will also always need some virgin paper in the mix. And that is because the fiber length, the, the wood fiber length decreases as it gets recycled more and more often. So in order to keep the strength of the paper, you need some virgin paper in there. And then it's the question, how do you source that as responsibly as possible? So we have all our virgin paper is a chain of custody certified. So 100%. So we choose FSC. That is our preferred certification scheme. We think that's the, the, the best that meets our needs the best. And so that is how we how we do that. And we obviously have close contact with our suppliers of that paper to make sure that any issues that are not covered by FSC get picked up as well. So it is not enough to just rely on FSC. You need to have this active dialogue as well. Uh, and of course, we listen to NGOs as well if there are concerns around that. So I think that is the that that's that's the approach that we take, and it seems to work reasonably well we're also lucky that where we source from is europe and north america and we don't source from some of the worst hotspots of deforestation of like 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 borneo or brazil or places like that so we're we're sourcing from relatively safe places but you you can't just uh, rest on your laurels you need to really have systems to check that the sourcing is responsible And then you alluded to the innovation within the sector voucher as part of what you're doing in in terms of progressing um, your methodologies uh, and the way that you do things. Can you say a little bit more about the types of innovation that you can see coming up that will enhance your business model and the the cost of investment or anticipated cost of investment for that? Well, there's a few things. Obviously, there in the industry, if I just take it over, if I take a step back and look at the industry as a whole, a lot of players are looking into how can we create better barrier properties that are not plastic, and that is that's the holy grail if you want. If you can if you can have something that has the fat barrier and the moisture barrier of a plastic, but doesn't is is not a plastic. In fact, is 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 not a polymer. Um, now that is incredibly difficult to do, and there's a huge amount of investment going on in, in, in that area. I personally think a few areas that I would like to look at, one is reuse, because I think we there reuse is sometimes seen as, of course, reuse is better than recycling. But actually, 
it is a gray skill. You need to look at specific applications, specific supply chains to say in which cases is recycling better and in which cases is reuse better. Or perhaps another tool from the circular uh, toolbox, if you if you could call it that. And I would like to find the, those areas where reuse of corrugated is really a, a suitable solution. We do some of this already in automotive, for example, in the automotive industry, but I think we can do more of it. So I would like to do some innovation in that area, find out in which applications can we do more about reuse. And I, I also think that there are some really interesting opportunities in e-commerce because of course e-commerce is booming. And I think we can do much more in that area. In so those, those, those will be my, my preferred ones at the moment. How do you think you influence individuals? I mean, given what you've said around the circular economy, there's a huge amount of business learning within that. But as I listen to you, I can see that there's obviously a huge amount of individual learning that, that one can take away from that and think about how you adopt those principles within your daily life. Do you feel as an organisation that you're able to connect with individuals in that way and, and apply some educational frameworks as well that people can access? Yes, and you can really see that it takes a little bit of time because circular economy is perhaps a bit more abstract than I would like mm-hmm. as, a, as, a, as a concept. And it takes a little while for people to really get their heads around it and say, how can I apply that in my day-to-day work but once they've understood the concept and understand how they can contribute to it there's no stopping them and the the passion is the passion flows over almost and i can really see that with our designers our product designers so we've taken them through a journey where they had to learn more about circular economy and the circular design principles that we developed and now they're applying that in every design that they make and they can tell the customer about the benefits of it. So using the minimal amount of resources, designing out waste, making sure that 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 we only use as much fiber as we need, but no more. Mm-hmm. And making sure that the pelletization is such that you use fewer lorries, you have fewer lorries on the road. And solutions like that sounds simple and and but you, you just need to put in place the, the the education and the tools to make it easy for people to adopt this new idea. And could you tell us how uh, the circular economy concept and the climate relate to each other, how that works? Sure. I, I think um, there was a really interesting report from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation a couple of years ago that, that made this point exactly. And the outcome of that report was that to avert the disastrous effects of climate change, just focusing on renewable energy is not enough. That's only about 55% of the equation. The other 45% is actually on how you uh, produce and consume products. So in other words, that's about the circular economy. And so if you only do renewable energy or only circular economy, you're not addressing the full picture. You need to do both side by side if you want to really have the 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 the, the full effect. And I think Dear Smith already had leadership in circular economy, and we've now recently um, committed to a science-based target by 2030 and net zero by 2050. 
and looking at the roadmap that we have in place on, on how to get there and you combine the circular economy and this climate journey, I think we're on the right uh, on the right track. Wonderful. Well, look, today, Valter, you've taken us on this, I think, wonderful journey of the story of DS Smith and its leadership within the circular economy and all the things that you're doing that are creating the change that we want to see. So for that, I, I, I thank you and I'd encourage our listeners to look at your ESG report and, 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 and digest it because I suspect that your leadership will continue well into the 2030s and, and, and beyond. So thank you for your time today. It's very much appreciated. I'd love to continue the conversation, but I know we're going to have to wrap it up there. But thank you. Thank you very much. No, thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you.